When I was a kid, people asked me frequently, Charles, what do you want to do when you grow up? Now, my answers changed over time. In sixth grade, it was the, being the starting pitcher for the LA Dodgers. <laughs> that didn't come close to working out. Senior in high school, I wanted to join the US Army. That came close to working out. College, I want to be a computer engineer. No, I want to be a journalist. No, computer engineer. And then I went off to grad school, and I wanted to be an Old Testament professor. <laughs> I, I think that story is not that uncommon. I think for, for most of us, we've thought about what we want to do when we grow up. Right? We, we thought about the kind of careers we want to have because our parents, our teachers, they encouraged us. Hey, you got to plan for the future. you got to think about what you want to do when you grow up. So we spend time answering the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? Now, here's the thing. I don't recall ever being asked, what kind of person do you want to become when you grow up? Not, not what you will do, but who you will be. Was never asked that. So I don't think I thought very much about it. So today I'm going to ask you this question, and not just for the young people, not just for the kids, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to ask everybody, what kind of a person do you want to become when you grow up? That is the question that we're going to be struggling with in this new series that we are starting today. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Gre greeting those of you who are here and those of you joining us, uh, Traditions, Gospel Fusion, Downtown, Fitchburg. Big shout out to all of you who are um, streaming this online and those of you listening to our podcast. Uh, to the Chinese speakers, Xinian Kuai Le. To the Spanish speakers, Es un gusto tenerlos aquí con nosotros. And to all of you, welcome to Black Hawk Church. We're very glad you are here. Last fall, we spent 15 weeks on the Book of Acts. And we talked about our identity, who we are as the church. And we learned that we are God's people who have, who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to partner with God on his mission to reclaim his authority and his reign over this earth. That's who we are as the church. That's who we are as God's people. Well, today we're starting a new series and we're answering the next question. If we are the people of God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What is Jesus' vision for us as individual Christ followers? Okay. If we are being transformed for a mission, what are we being transformed into? Who are we becoming? There are three chapters in the Bible where Jesus lays out his vision for his followers. And he answers these questions. What are the basic characteristics of the people who live in the kingdom? How do they think? What do they value? How do they act? And these three chapters are found in your Bible, in the New Testament, in a, in a book called the Gospel according to Matthew. It's, they're Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and collectively they are known as the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend 11 weeks in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before I jump into it, though, I need to acknowledge that there is a major problem. And the problem is this. The Sermon on the Mount is notoriously difficult to interpret. <laughs> there are mountains of books written about the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason is because Jesus says some really outrageous things in it. 
I mean, things are like, wait, wait, that can't possibly be what Jesus is saying. He can't possibly want that from us. It's impossible. As a result, throughout church history, there's been a number of people who have proposed reading the Sermon on the Mount in a way that says, you don't really have to live out the Sermon on the Mount. You don't really have to worry about it that much. I don't know if you're familiar with that, like those kind of teaching. They're actually quite common. Scott McKnight, a professor of New Testament, this is how he summarizes how people have read the Sermon on the Mount. The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising, and render it harmless. That's how we read the Sermon on the Mount. That's how I grew up reading it. I grew up reading that Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to worry about it very much. You see, Jesus teaches it to show us how sinful we are, how much we need the cross, and how much we need grace. But once you believe in Jesus, just kind of ignore the rest of it. When I grew older, I heard other interpretations that says, ah, the Sermon on the Mount is really for the, for the, for the more serious disciples. You see, you see, you, see you, have the, you have the regular Christ followers, and then you have the super Christ followers. And the Sermon on the Mount is for those people, right? You know, like the priests or the pastors. Rats, I'm on the hook again. <laughs> so here's the thing. Before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's pretty important for us to understand and answer some basic questions about the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount? What kind of a talk is it? What does Jesus hope to accomplish with this talk? What does he want his listeners to do with what he said? To answer these basic questions, we're going to do something here that you're probably familiar with at Blockhawk, which is we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount in its literary context. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is actually in the very first book of the New Testament. Okay, go there. Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. The question we want to answer first is, where does the Sermon on the Mount fit within the storyline of Matthew? So if you have your Bible or you're kind of a smartphone, smart device, go to Matthew chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole thing. That's going to be pretty long. We're just going to look at, we're going to scan the titles, okay? We're just going to scan the title and flip pages and scan the titles. So if you, if you have Matthew 1, you're realizing, oh, it starts with genealogy for Jesus. And then you have Joseph marrying Mary, and then they have a baby, and then Jesus is born. And then we have the Magi. The Magi show up, and then Joseph grabs Jesus, and they run off to Egypt, and they come back to Nazareth. So first two chapters of Matthew, it's all about baby Jesus. And I know for some of you right now, yes. I have Talladega Nights in my head as well, okay? <laughs> Chapter 3, John the Baptist shows up, baptizes Jesus. And then chapter 4, uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he gets tested. He gets trained up for ministry. And then starting in verse 12, Jesus begins to preach. And then he calls a few disciples, a few fishermen to follow him. And then he heals the sick. And that's where chapter 4 ends. And what's in chapter 5? All right, that's not a trick question, okay? <laughs> Chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. This is important. I don't want you to miss this, okay? I don't want you to miss this, okay? So this is the Gospel of Matthew, the first few chapters. Chapters 1 and 2, stories about baby Jesus. Two chapters. A chapter and a half on Jesus' baptism and preparation. And then the second half of chapter 4, just half chapter, on Jesus starting his ministry. And then chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount, and in these, the second half of chapter 4, 
Matthew gives us two critical verses that tells us what Jesus is all about. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what does Jesus preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. These are Matthew's summary statements about what Jesus is all about. So if we ask the question, what does Jesus teach? What is the focus of his ministry? Well, according to Matthew, it's Jesus teaches the good news of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is all about. Now, that's a nice summary statement. But if you start asking questions like, okay, now what does Jesus actually say about the coming of the kingdom? Like, what is the actual content of this teaching? If you look for it in chapters 1 through 4, you will look in vain. Because it's not in there. The actual teaching about the kingdom starts in chapter 5. So here's the critical understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount is good news of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. We have to start here. Now, if we understand the Sermon on the Mount this way, of course, the first thing we need to get at is, whoa, whoa, okay, what, what does this phrase mean? What is the kingdom of heaven? What is that about? Now, if you notice, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, but if you look in Mark or Luke, they use the phrase kingdom of God. And um, Bible scholars say the two phrases mean pretty much the same thing. Sometimes heaven is used in the place of God because heaven is God's domain. So the two terms are interchangeable. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Let me start with what it is not. The kingdom of heaven is not the place you go to when you die. Okay? Important. Jesus didn't come to teach about the afterlife. Jesus didn't come to teach about your eternal destiny. No, 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 no. If you understand the kingdom of heaven that way, you would be seriously misunderstanding Jesus. Okay? No, the key to understanding the kingdom of heaven is not to not focus so much on the word heaven, but instead to focus on the word kingdom. Right? You see, a kingdom has a king, somebody who has authority, who has power. And the kingdom is therefore the realm in which the king rules, and this king has people who pledge allegiance to this king. They obey this king. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven is the realm in which God is king. He has power. He has authority. And within this realm, there are people who obey God and pledge allegiance to God. Is that clear? Okay. That's important because that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, the question is, well, why is Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's because Jesus assumes that you know the Old Testament backstory. You see, in the Old Testament story, our earth, this world here, used to be part of God's kingdom. And that we human beings, we seceded from that kingdom. And the result of that secession has been nothing short of catastrophic. War, diseases, violence, oppression, slavery, hatred, cruelty. We become broken people living in a broken world, and our world lives in rebellion against the rightful authority. God. 
And God wants to reestablish his reign on this earth. God wants to take back what belongs to him. Is that clear? It's important because that's actually the storyline of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, hey, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, he's not saying, oh, you're all going to die soon. Okay? He's not saying, oh, the world's going to end soon. No, no, no. What he's saying is God has finally begun to act. He is now beginning to establish his reign on earth, and he is going to recruit a community and new people who obey him and love him and pledge allegiance to him. And this new community, that's the good news. It's the good news for a broken world that is marred in sin and corruption. And how is God going to achieve and establish his kingdom? Well, he has sent his own son, Jesus, to be the king of this new kingdom. And Jesus is recruiting people. Okay? Jesus is recruiting people to be part of his kingdom. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus proclaiming the arrival of this new kingdom. Okay? So what is the function of the speech? What is Jesus hoping to accomplish with the Sermon on the Mount? Invitation. Jesus is inviting people into the kingdom. How is he doing that? How does he hope to attract people into the kingdom? Well, Jesus lays out a radical reimagination of what it means to be human. Jesus says, here's what human lives can look like if they're empowered by the life of God. Okay? And not in some future fairy, you know, heavenly world. No, right here in this broken world, right here in this broken world, there's another way of existence, another way of being human. Come with me, follow me, I will show you how. Invitation. We have to understand this critical aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand this. Jesus says, here's the good news. I'm here. Okay, here's the good news. I'm here. I'm starting this new kingdom thing. Here's what it looks like. Do you want to be part of it? Do you want to come in? Invitation. And that takes us straight into the very first section of the Sermon on the Mount, otherwise known as the Beatitudes. Okay, so let's go there. Chapter 5, verse 1, begins like this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Nine statements of blessed are those, known as the Beatitudes. Now, to understand the Beatitudes, we need to answer two questions. 
Number one, who is Jesus talking to? And second, why does he use this blessed are so-and-so statement? All right, first thing, who is Jesus talking to? Well, verse one tells you, right? It's the crowd. Well, we happen to know more than that. You know why we know more than that? Because Matthew is very, very careful in telling us exactly who's in the crowd. It's right in this paragraph right above. So let's go there, okay? Starting in verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Who is in the crowd? Well, people were sick. Severe pain. Demon-possessed. Having seizures. Paralyzed. And the people who know them and love them. Oh, if you read up four verses up here, a few fishermen. That's the crowd, all right? Who are these people? Well, we know they're not powerful or wealthy. You see, if you're sick and you're powerful and wealthy, um, you have doctors come to your house. You have people come to your house. You don't go traipsing around the countryside chasing some rabbi teacher type. You don't do that. So you know these people are not doing well. They're pretty desperate, okay? You know that. They're the nobodies of this world. We know that's the crowd. Second question. Why does Jesus use this blessed are so-and-so formula? Why does Jesus do that? Well, this is what we have to remember. Um, the Bible's not written to us, but for us. Jesus is speaking to a first-century Jewish audience. So today, for example, you hear somebody say, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> Your first thought is, ah, a Monty Python fan. And your second thought is, oh, they got that from Jesus. Okay, that's our reaction. That is not the reaction of a first century Jewish audience. When they hear a blessed are so-and-so, they think two things. Number one, they think, oh, this is about the kingdom. You see, the word blessing is a significant part of the story of the Bible. The Bible begins with God blessing humanity. He blesses humanity. He says, I'm going to pour my life into you humans so that you can live a life that is fully alive to God and fully alive to the world. But because of sin and because of the secession humans made away from God's kingdom, the, the, the creation is cursed. And, and humanity is doomed to sin and death. But God promises blessing is coming. A renewal of that relationship with God and humanity. And so here Jesus begins with blessed. And people are like, oh yeah, it's about the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Hey, how about that? The kingdom of heaven is a place of blessing. It is a kingdom of blessing. It is the place, it is the realm in which God pours out his power for human flourishing. This is a kingdom of blessing. That's the first thing they would hear. The second thing they would hear, this statement is about clarifying who is fit for the kingdom, who is invited into the kingdom. You see, we hear this and we go, oh, Jesus said it. Yeah, well, that's not what they would think. 
When, when they heard this, they go, oh, well, Jesus is teaching like typical Jewish rabbis. Okay? This kind of phrasing is all over the place among Jewish writings in the ancient world. We have them in our Old Testament. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed are those who, who do not walk in the, path, in the counsel of the wicked. Right? Psalm 1, verse 1. We're very familiar with that one. Jewish rabbis use this type of statements to declare who is God's, who is God's presence with, who, who, who is God's power with, right? who is fit to be part of the kingdom, who is invited into the kingdom. In fact, 150 years before Jesus, there is this rabbi, this Jewish teacher named Ben Sirah. Okay? And he had a lot to say about people who were blessed. Okay, I'm going to read what he says to you. I want you to pay careful attention to who he thinks God is going to bless. Okay, here goes. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and the tenth my tongue proclaims. Blessed is a man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife. And bl- <laughs> Okay, not touching that one. Blessed, <laughs> blessed is the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Blessed is the one who does not sin with his tongue. And blessed is the one who has not served the inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. And blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom. But none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? So, now now look, this kind of sounds like the Bible, right? I mean... Fear the Lord. That that sounds pretty good. That sounds very Bible-like. But there are other parts of this you kind of go, huh. Right? Like, blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How do you know you're blessed? When you talk, people listen. You see, you have a great reputation. People come to you for advice, for counsel. And when you speak, people go, oh, wow, okay. You're highly respected. You have a tremendous reputation for wisdom. That's how you know you're blessed. When you talk, people listen. Let's go to the previous page. Blessed is a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Now, in the Roman culture, Roman Empire, it's kind of a rough and tumble culture. If you want to get to certain places in society, you need to make enemies. And what's going to happen is you go after them and they come after you. So how do you know you've been blessed? How do you know that God's on your side? How do you know you're fit for the kingdom? You win. Winning means you're blessed by God. One more. Blessed is the man who has not served an inferior. First century Roman Empire, notoriously known for its consciousness about status. So let's say I'm a pretty high-ranking person. I'm right here. How do I know I'm blessed? Because I never have to serve somebody who's beneath me, who's lower than me, who's of a lower rank. I never have to serve that person. That's how I know God is with me. Do you see it? Do you see how people in the first century Jewish world would understand who is blessed? 
According to the Jewish teachers, according to the rabbis, who does Yahweh, the creator God of the universe, bless? Who does he invite to his new kingdom? People who have high reputation, people who triumph over their enemies, people who have high status. These are the people who are blessed. And that's what people think in the first century among the Jewish people. And that's what the crowd thinks. Okay? People who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount, they think this too. And these are people who are not winners in our society, in their society. These are people who, are, who, are, who, are, who don't have high status, who don't have power, who have not triumphed over anyone. These are the nobodies. And they know very well that they are not blessed. They're following Jesus around, hoping against hope, just for some smidgen of the power from God to help them cope with their broken lives. And of course, they're following Jesus, and he's a rabbi type, and he's going to talk. Oh, he's going to talk. Here we go. He's going to start talking. And the first word that comes out of his mouth, blessed. Great. Another rabbi talking about blessed are those people over there. We are so sick and tired of hearing people talk about how blessed are those people over there. Okay, we know we're not blessed. We know that already. Can we stop talking about this? I heard this a thousand times. You see the head goes down. You see the ears tune out. And then the rest of the sentence hits home. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? Imagine the crowd, heads pop up, ears perk up. Did he just say what I thought he said? They look up, and Jesus is looking right at them. Best, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And the crowd is like, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we are the poor in spirit. We are those who mourn. We are the meek. Are you saying, Jesus, that we are to be blessed? You're saying that we are fit for the kingdom? Are you saying that you're inviting us to the kingdom? I, I wish I could, I wish I would have more time to walk through every single one of these lists, okay? But here's the gist. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is blessing a bunch of people that nobody thinks is blessed, Jesus is inviting into the kingdom a whole bunch of people that nobody thinks should be invited. Group one, people who are hurting, who are downtrodden, who are not the winners in their society. They're the weak ones. Group two, people who are dissatisfied with their culture, with the world around them. They see injustice, they see suffering, they see oppression. They're like, ugh. And you have people who, 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 who just keep their, arms, keep, keep their society at arm's length. Or people who are like, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to make a difference, trying to make something better. Group three, people who, who are willing to face persecution and suffering to bring about God's better world. And Jesus says to this group of people, you are blessed. You are invited into the kingdom. The kingdom is for you. And so here's the obvious question. Why them? The answer? Because they do not like the world as it is. Jesus says the kingdom is coming. 
God is turning the world right side up. And for those people who do not like the world as it is, they have all the reasons in the world to pursue and embrace the kingdom. They are so ready for the kingdom. They are right on the threshold. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus issuing this invitation to these people. Come on into the kingdom. You are so ready. You are so ready for this kingdom. And Jesus makes the same invitation to us today. As you're looking at this list, is there anyone here that, 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 that resonates with you? Are you someone who feels weak and broken, tired, sick? Have you been a victim of injustice and oppression? Are you someone who is not considered a winner in our economic system? Are you stuck in a dead-end job, a difficult situation? Do you feel unheard, unseen, ignored? Do you feel powerless? Or are you somebody who is deeply dissatisfied with the world around us? You see the injustice, you see the oppression, and you are so frustrated, you get so angry, and you want so much for the world to be made right. Or are you someone who looks at our vain, egotistical, surface, shallow world, and you say, no, thank you, I don't want any part of this. Or are you somebody who don't really care what other people think, and you're willing to pay the price to think differently and live differently from our world. Jesus says, blessings on you. Come on into the kingdom. It is made for you. God is going to turn the world right side up. I know some of us here, um, we look at this list and we go, yeah, I don't really resonate with any of these. Am I blessed? Am I invited to the kingdom? Well, let me just say this. If you don't resonate with anything on this list, chances are you are somebody who feels pretty comfortable with this world. You are doing pretty well financially, have a good career, healthy, good family. You feel like you have found a place in this world. And this passage says is that when it comes to the kingdom, you start a couple of steps behind. Weird, right? You see, God's turning the world right side up. Which means what we think of as, as advantages, like wealth and status and fluency with our culture, they turn out to be disadvantages because they lessen our desire for the kingdom. Okay? They lessen our desire for the kingdom. We're not people who want the world to change. We're pretty good with the status quo. We are comfortable. So yes, the kingdom is still open to us. The kingdom is still being invited. We are still being invited to enter in, but we have to know that we have more obstacles to face. We have to be cognizant that as we have made a home in this world, the world has made a home in us. And that makes it harder for us to desire and crave for the kingdom like some other people, which means we need to know that and we need to learn from those who do. So we're going to get started, folks. Okay, this is the first, first Sunday of the series. We're going to get started. And the assignment during these 11 weeks, very simple, read the Sermon on the Mount. It takes 
about 20 minutes to read all three chapters out loud. 20 minutes, that's it. Which means you can like start tomorrow and read all of it, and then next day read small chunks. I don't care how you do it, but read it every single day. Read it during your quiet time. Read it during your devotion. Read it. And by the time we get done in 11 weeks, you will probably have read it over 10 times, 15 times, 20 times. You are going to know the Sermon on the Mount. Now, but before you start reading, please do not forget what we have learned today about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of heaven. It is his radical reimagination of what humans can be. It is humans at its highest state of life potency, empowered by the life of God. It is not designed to give you a guilt trip. Okay? If you feel like you're getting a guilt trip, you're reading it wrong. It's designed to draw you in. It is designed to inspire you. It is designed to make you go, whoa. So please, 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 don't sit there and get caught into the nitty-gritty of, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Or like, well, I can't possibly do that. That's impossible. Don't get stuck on that. Instead, here's what's going on. Jesus is painting a picture of humanity. He says, this is what I'm offering, and it's way better than what the world has to offer. Look at his vision. Do you want it? Do you want to live in a, in a, in a community of people who, who are like that? That's being described in 5 through 7 of, Rome, of, of Matthew. Is that what you want? And I ask that seriously because I don't want you to jump into the right answer. Because everybody knows what the right answer is. The right answer is, well, of course, yes, because Jesus is pushing it. It's Jesus' vision. Well, of course it is. Don't jump to the right answer because, because precisely it's because it's Jesus. That I'm, I'm thinking most of us are not going to like all of it or even most of it. It's Jesus' vision. It's God's vision for humanity. And we are not God. We are broken people raised in a broken culture, which means we are not wired to want what God wants. And you're going to see that when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Every little section, you're going to go, oh, that's Jesus' vision. Wow, that's really strange. That's really different from the, what the world is offering. So as you read the Sermon on the Mount, answer this question. What kind of person do you want to become when you grow up? Our culture is vain. It's angry. It's divisive. It's all about self-expression. And Jesus says, here's something that's very, very, very different. Read it. Struggle with it. In this series, we are not going to domesticate Jesus' words. We're not going to render it harmless. We're going to struggle with Jesus' vision for what our lives can look like for 11 weeks. Let's read it. Let's listen to it. Let's let it sink in. Because it's about becoming. Let me pray for us. Father, we, 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 we look at your words and we want to handle it with respect because Jesus, you're God and you come and you teach this to us. We do not want in any way domesticate what you're, what you're saying. We don't want to, to, to change it into something that, that we can feel happy about. Instead, we want to be transformed by you. 
we know that we, are, we don't want what you want because we live in this broken world and we, we are sinful people among a, sinful, a, a sinful, sinful world and we know that. We know we don't, we don't wire a certain way. So help us as we read. Help us to be honest with you about who we are and where we are and for your Holy Spirit to come alongside us to help us see your vision, your image, what, how, what our lives can be. We want to think about not just what we do with our lives, but the kind of people we become, the kind of person we become. It's, it's a gift. We need to see that. Help us to see that this is a gift and this is good news. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.